Duckworth family. I was told just uh, before the service started that Naomi Phillips has fallen and been taken to the hospital. She is, of course, uh, of senior age with her husband. Many of us have recognized that David, their son, has moved back to be in service to them, and there's a daily routine that he goes through to make life work for them. But may I stop and pray for Naomi this morning? The Lord knows everything that's going on, and I'm grateful for that. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning in your presence, and I am grateful that you know every one of us thoroughly, thoroughly. You know what we're going through. You know the burdens on our heart. You know our hopes and our dreams. You know the graduates and their hopes and dreams. And Thank you for your deep love for each of them. You know those who are anticipating their 50th anniversary of graduates, and you know everything in between. And Lord, you know the way that we take and are taking us through it yourself. To show us yourself, to give us eyes to see you, faith to trust you, and joy to hold on to your hand. What a capable Savior and shepherd you are. Father, for our sister Naomi Phillips, we pray this morning, and for Charlie. I pray that uh, you would give grace to Naomi and help her as they are helping her at the hospital now. Give grace to Charlie. Don't be worried about her. We love them. They've been around so long, and you've given them a long, full life. Thank you. And now life is a little brittle and a little tough. Give them grace and give Naomi relief from pain and help. You are our refuge and our fortress, our God in whom we trust. And so we entrust these to you this morning. Use David as a strong instrument in your hand to be of encouragement. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My congratulations to the graduates this morning. Great accomplishment. High school graduation in America and in the West is actually a bit of a passage into adult life. And I know it is argued that some aren't going too well adulting, but nonetheless, uh, there is a threshold after graduating from high school that uh, uh, you're it. You're an adult now, and you take flight, and it's a big transition. Each season of life has its own glory. And you're seated among folks here this morning, graduates, who f know full and all too well that life passes ever so quickly. So this morning, we want to take our cue for living from an icon in the scriptures from the book of Genesis, biblical Joseph. I'm arguing this morning that Joseph teaches us how life really is. A realistic expectation of life will actually help us forward. In just what way will God call for a response from your heart and mine today as we look at Joseph and use Joseph as a lens through which to look at our life? How will we steward this day, this week, 
this month, this year, this decade, and the life that God will give us for us. It's such a great stewardship to handle life well before this one that we will appear when life is over. It doesn't last very long, James 4.14. So what is your life? You are amidst that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This morning, I want to go two different directions. First, cliff notes on the life of Joseph. Do you need some remedial work and a reminder of his life? Then secondly, what does Joseph's story say to the graduating class of 2022? And we're all going to find that it speaks to our hearts. So first, a crash course on the life of Old Testament Joseph. Turn with me to Genesis 50 and verse 20. This is our thesis verse. Joseph gets to the end of his life. And his dream has come true. His brothers have bowed down before him. And God chose to use him to preserve Jacob's family. And he says this, looking back over all the experiences of his life. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Hear the word of the Lord. Now let me remind you of the five movements in Joseph's life. First, a favored son is given a dream. Look at Genesis 37 with me, verses 3 through 7. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. In his youth, he's the favored son, played to by his father, Jacob. That never works out for a family to have a favorite. And he, as a young man, began to have dreams about what his life would involve. Not unlike us who have dreams as we are younger about what our life is going to be. And I love that part of living, uh, someone reaching for all that they could accomplish. And here's Joseph coming to understand this dream and coming to grips with it. He dreams that his brothers will bow down to him. A favored son is given a dream. The second uh, movement in his life is a brother betrayed is sold into slavery. Look at verses 18 through 20 in verse 8. They say to him from a, they, they saw him from afar, that is, Joseph coming to visit his brothers. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. 
Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And so Reuben persuades them. They stick him in a hole. He notices the Midianites coming by on their way to Egypt. He said, let's just take his coat, put some blood on it, tell him that a fierce animal got him, and we'll just sell him off into slavery. So he gives them to the Midianites to take him down to Egypt. In treachery, his brothers sell him, verses 26 and 27. Looking up, they saw a caravan. I said Midianites, it's Ishmaelites. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. And they sent him off. A brother betrayed is sold into slavery. Have you noticed that the hardest hurts in life come from those that are closest to us? The closer that person is relationally to us, the more we are hurt by slights and being taken advantage of. And the hurt was deep. The brother betrayed, sold into slavery. How would it turn out? Look at Genesis 39, verse 1. And Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Hear the word of the Lord. So good fortune, as it were, followed him because uh, he was purchased into slavery by a very prominent family, Uh, somebody high up, uh, this Potiphar guy. And those high up Egyptian officials, by the way, would have uh, been those persons who would have had uh, their pick of the beautiful women in Egypt. So no doubt Potiphar's wife was an attractive woman. And he falls into being a household servant of this family. And he's doing a fine job when Potiphar's wife began to try to seduce him, to treacherously relate to him sexually behind her husband's back as if it wasn't enough to be sold off into slavery as if it wasn't enough to be facing all this transition he falls in doing his garden variety duty as a servant to this household the woman is hitting on him trying to take advantage of him and then of course uh, the text comes to verse 11 of chapter 39 but one day when he went into the house that is Joseph to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Hear the word of the Lord. By the way, once and for all in history, we find out what to do in circumstances where we are vulnerable. That is to run out of the circumstance as fast as we can. And that's exactly what he did. But he left his cloak there. And she, of course, then falsely accuses him of trying to take sexual advantage of her. She, the one who had driven the whole thing. So here he is. He gets down there. If that wasn't bad enough, he gets a decent job. He's doing well in it. He's, he's a caretaker of the 
a pretty prominent person's house, and then he's hit with this, and he's pushed back down. He rises and falls in Egypt. I had a friend once introduce me to the word. He used it, and I go, what in the world does that word mean? And I love words. Vicissitudes. I go, what's a vicissitude? And he was talking about the vicissitudes of life. I thought, well, what in the world are the vicissitudes of life? It's the ups and the downs. I said, well, I get that, the ups and the downs of life. This guy faced more ups and downs, and they inextricably come. In fact, he is life and what it's really like. Well, then, the fourth movement is that he ascends in faithfulness to influence. Look at chapter 40. He is put in prison. While he's in prison, he runs into Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. They had made him mad. He put him in prison. And so uh, they have a dream. And they're troubled by the dream. And they tell the dream, look, you know, we had this dream. We want you to interpret it. You, you got a word on this? And by the way, he was caretaker of the prisoners at this point. Wherever he went, he just rose to the occasion. God had his hand on his life, even through hard things. Stick with that idea. So he ascends in faithfulness to influence. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 4, sometime after this, a cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and the baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with these two officers, the chief cupbearer, the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So then they have a dream, and Joseph interprets the dream. And Joseph tells them, look, one of you are going to get out and one of you are not. When you get out, you're both going to get out. One of you is going to be restored to your job, but the other of you is going to be killed. But when this happens, remember that I'm here, and I want you to remember me and help me out when you get next to Pharaoh. Well, what happened? They're released. The baker, he was killed. The cupbearer was fully restored. But when he was restored, fancy that, he forgot all about Joseph who helped him understand what was before him. So there he is, pining away, day after day again, uh, in prison. Verses 25 and 26 of Genesis 41, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, oh, here's, I'm getting ahead. So then the, uh, he rises and falls in Egypt. Then, movement four, he ascends in faithfulness to influence. What Joseph did is he invested, and it's my encouragement for all of us, in dollar-cost averaging obedience and faithfulness, and he just rode out the providence for wherever it was going to take him. And so in the midst of dollar-cost averaging faithfulness, day after day, moment after moment, Pharaoh stumbles onto a dream. It's really troubling. It's kind of a weird dream. Seven super-fat cows walk out of the Nile River up on the land. Then the dream continued, and seven puny, skinny, sickly, weak-looking cows come out of the river. And then he wakes up, and he's really startling. I wonder what that means. And so he asked his people. They couldn't help him. And then the cupbearer, aha, he remembered. Hey, wait a minute. He said, you know what? There was a guy when I was in prison. I had a dream, and he interpreted the dream. He told me exactly what it was. And let's, let's get him out. And so... He pulls Joseph out, and, and he tells Joseph the dream. He said, nobody can figure this out. What is it? He says, well, here it is. 
you are going to have seven years of an economic haymaker. I mean, it's going to be fat city for the land of Egypt. But it will be followed by seven horrible economic years. And you better prepare in the good years for the horrible years or you won't survive. To which Pharaoh replied, you are my chief economic advisor, Joseph. And he brings Joseph out of prison. And Joseph rises up to control all the economic goods in Egypt. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary story. Well, now finally, the fifth movement is, of course, the end, where God preserves Jacob's family through Joseph. Sure enough, seven fat years, they stored up goods. Sure enough, seven horrible years, and everybody was starving, including Jacob's family back in Israel. So what do they do? Well, what they do is they say, we're going to die if we sit here. Go get some food. I've heard there's some down in Egypt. They go down there, and they appear to try to get some food. Genesis 47, 11, and 12 say this. Then Joseph, oh, no, this is the end. So they, they go down. I'm getting way ahead. I've got to keep in place here. How about 41, 25, and 26? Is that right? Well, anyway, that's terrible. Forgive me. I'm sorry. The brothers get to Egypt. They bow down. They're another garden variety group here begging. Joseph comes out, and he realizes, those are my brothers. Those are Jacob's sons. They're bowing down before me. And he had that aha moment of realizing, that's what I've dreamed about since I was young. And in he brought his dad, that is in Genesis 47, 11, and 12, his dad and his dad's family, the heirs to the promise of Abraham, Abraham's grandson, verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Hear the word of the Lord. Instead of starving and dying out, they were prepared for another generation. Now that's five movements in Joseph's story. A favorite son's given a dream. A brother betrayed is sold into slavery. He rises and falls in Egypt. He ascends in faithfulness to influence, and God preserves Jacob's family through Joseph. Well, that's a good story, Eric. What in the world does that have to do with me? What does Joseph's story say to the graduating class of 2022? Again, the thesis verse is Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph said to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, of course, anyone who's lived five minutes after graduation understands these three points that I'm going to bring. Genesis 50, verse 22, becomes a bit of a prism for Joseph to look back over his life and say, have I had difficulties? Have I had struggles? Have I had things that I didn't understand? Yes, but all the while through them, God was working good. 
and I can now see it. And we're going to come back to that point about whether or not we can see it. But just stay there with me. That, his language is very important. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Three realities for the follower of Jesus, a graduate or not, in a broken world. Reality number one, we all face struggle, difficulty, and joy in life. And let me just stop and say it's easy for us to recognize the struggles, but let us not be negligent to rec- to, so as not to recognize that there's a lot of joy in life. Each season of life has joy. And we need to keep our eyes open to it. And that joy is in proportion to our setting before us the things that God values. In proportion to the resolve that we've had to set such values before us, in that same proportion, we will experience joy in living. But life is hard, yes, but in all seasons of life, there is certainly joy to be had together. Even when babies are crying, there is joy to be had together. Now, the Bible urges us also not to be astonished by trouble in a broken world. I love Peter's realism, 1 Peter 4.12. Think it not strange when you run into various troubles. I run into people who are stupefied by struggle. Now, in part, I love their stupefaction because if they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are going to really love the eternal state when God makes everything new. That's just not now. Now the world is broken. It doesn't work. We all know now that Murphy was a prophet. The world's messed up. And so... Peter says, don't be alarmed if you face trouble. What do you think this was? A world healed with the curse of sin and death removed? No, not yet. I know what you're yearning for. And I love Matt Chandler's statement that we all are homesick for Eden, a place that feels like we've been there, although we haven't been there yet. But in Christ, we're going back to paradise. And if you know him as your savior, that's where you're headed. That's where all things will be made new. And until then, we're going to bump up against gnarly, rotten, broken things in this old sinful world. I had a friend just die, a neat guy. Had his own inimitable style. Before he was 30 years old, as I recall, I may be missing a little bit of the story, but before he was 30 years old, he faced a great sadness and a major setback in a relationship. And he really, in that moment, he crawled in the hole. I don't think he ever crawled out. He just died. If somebody would have handed me his death certificate under cause of death, said, Mounts, write something down there, I would have put down bitterness and sadness over loss. That's what killed him. And C.S. Lewis said our bodies and our souls live so close to each other, they catch each other's diseases. If we don't handle life right emotionally, if we don't handle life right intellectually and think well, 
we'll mess up the function of our body and stress and worry and lament and hate and bitterness and sadness. That's what's the glory of knowing Jesus is he cleans that stuff out in the deep satisfaction of knowing one who is perfect. Because as we look unto Jesus, there is absolutely nothing that is disappointing about him. And your joy can be made more full. Some are shocked by adversity. The realist lives with wisdom, skill, and living and just understands, hey, rotten things are part and parcel of this old broken world. And I don't care whoever says whatever about your best life now. <laughs> your life here is going to run into brokenness. We just run into it. And when we do, it drives us back to God's grace and his healing mercies that attend to us. Have you ever run into someone who got stuck in life? Are you stuck this morning? Have you fallen into a hole? Is bitterness eating your lunch? Oh, there's a better way. To give our loss, to give our disappointment, to give our pain, to give our hurt. Jesus was a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief. Jesus knew what it was to face ugly betrayal. Jesus knew what it was to have people lie and cheat and hurt him. He's a great Savior. He understands. And he can walk through whatever you are going through. We will all face struggle, difficulty, and joy in life. Now, the second reality is this. God's plans for us have good ends. God's plan for us have good ends. Do you believe that? It's affirmed in the word of God. I love this idea at the core of Genesis 50:22. God is working out good for us. What terms, what vocabulary does Joseph use to look back over his life and reflect upon everything? You know what one word he used? God meant it for good. Good. You were cheated. Good, Potiphar's wife falsely accused you. Good, the cupbearer forgot who you were. Good, you were in prison for a while. Good, your brothers sold you out. Good, you languished down there forever. Being pre-positioned by God to save Jacob's family and preserve the promise unto our Lord. Good. He says, good. God's plans for us have good ends. The fundamental idea at that core is that God is working out good for us. Now, if you would have taken a snapshot of Joseph in any of those hard times and said, oh, isn't this good? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Good? What? This is not, it doesn't feel good. But it cannot feel good and be betraying what is going on, and that is God is working good for his glory in our life. Yea, even through our suffering. Now, let me unpack this second point. God's good plans for us include the difficulties that we face. Let me say two things about this. God's good plan for us includes the difficulties we face. Struggles that Joseph faced were a part of God's plan for him. Difficulties are not outside of the will of God for you. I'll tell you what, I'm going to come to Jesus, I'm going to get rid of my difficulties. You'll have more by coming to Jesus, and it's the best way to go in life. 
difficulties are not outside of the will of God. We'll face them. Job said a long time ago, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards in a fire. Now here's the promise. I promise you graduates, I promise all of you, don't we have to make this promise to ourselves? We will face hard things and we'll face more hard things in the future. And here's what else I promise. God will be right in the middle of them working his good in our lives. Now, secondly, the second point I want to make under God's plans for us have good ends. The second thing I want to say is God's marvelous scheme for our lives involve ends which are bigger than our individual lives. You say, I thought God loved Joseph. He did. I thought God was really deeply interested in Joseph's life. He was. Well, if he really loved him and he was deeply interested, why did he drag him through the ditch for years and years and years? Because this drama of God working in our broken world was larger than Joseph's life. Erwin Lutzer has a phrase, I, I, I love it. He has said that, you know, we live in a culture that's so self-focused and it teaches us to be self-focused and think first and most and only of ourselves. He said that self-focused person is the person who has to be the infant at every baby shower being celebrated. It's the casket at every funeral and the center of attention and the bride at every wedding. See, we're groomed that way. But think of God's ends for us. And keep thinking with me. I'm going to use an illustration in a moment that's going to try to close up this thought and drive its force home. But we need to look at Romans 8, 28 and 29. We need to read 29 next to 28. But we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What are we predestined for when we come to follow Jesus? To be conformed to the image of his son. So this good that he's working out is bringing us to the end to be conformed to the image of his son. And if that's the larger purpose and play then God is such a genius so as to be able in his infinite ability to even use the difficulties of our lives to bring us into the conformity of his son. It's all about God and his glory and good and the exaltation of Jesus. When I think of Romans 8, 28 and 29, I look in vain to find a notion that God is deeply interested in our best life now, defined on our own terms by what we think would be a wonderful, wonderful life. What is a wonderful life is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent and becoming conformed to his image. Now, I'm not very cultured, but uh, I, I like a few pieces of classical music or, 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 or and orchestrated music also. And uh, I like Aaron Copeland's work. 
And uh, I love Appalachian Spring. I listened to it again this week in the, in the message. It's just beautiful. And to hear all the instruments work together, and you, know, you get a maestro up there, and he brings various sections in and out. I like the noble sound of the French horn and, and the strings when they take off really hard, and, and they each have their part. And, and e- even the clashing cymbals sound, sound cool at the right place. And um, but my favorite instrument in all the orchestra is the oboe. Its stark, beautiful sound is gorgeous in the middle of the piece. But, you know, it, it adds a layer in the mix that can almost not be heard unless everything else gets quieted down. And then the oboe takes off on a solo. And that's when I like it best. And it sounds so cool. Uh, but it's, it's a part, you know, there'll be many times where the, the oboe's not playing, just sitting there, because they're not brought in. And then, then they'll be brought in, and you'll watch the sections being played, and other times they're just seated there looking at the score, then they're brought in and out. But what would you think of the oboe player just storms in, first chair oboe, storms in, sits down at the maestro and says, I quit. You quit? What's, what's wrong? Tell you what, you are not featuring me enough. This is an orchestra, and I'm not featured. What's wrong with you, maestro? I don't care what people think about you. I quit. He just barnstormed. He says, dude, who told you the orchestra was singularly about the oboe? Well, that's just how it is. I'm the oboe, and I'm first, and I'm most, and I need to be noticed. I need to be out front, and I need to be at the center of everything. That's what our culture teaches us. You know what? It's awful to be that kind of an oboe. But to sit in your chair with the food that is your portion, Proverbs 30, what Ethan read, and when it's time for you to play, to get up and play and go, that is the great joy in life. And to realize that God, by his grace, just brought you in to sit down with the orchestra. And that you have a part. And to recognize that, Lord, I am going to submit myself to you. And if the world doesn't notice and nobody knows, I'm just going to do what's in the score for me to do. And I'm going to find joy in it. It's all about God's glory and good. Finally, the third reality is we won't understand everything God has planned for us to go through, and that's okay. This is what's sticky about studying Joseph, because we read Joseph's story, we see the dream, we see the realization of the dream, we see Genesis 50, 22, you meant it for evil, but God saw it for good, and and, and Joseph could see it all. He looked down, there's his brothers bowing before him, and he said, I can't believe it, the dream has come true. This is what it was all about. All that trouble was for this. It's all resolved. I can see it all clearly. And so many of us spend all of our life looking around in Providence, fishing through the tea leaves of what we've been through. God, what sense am I to make out of this? And then others speak with great confidence. I'll tell you what, Eric. I know exactly what God's doing. By the way, if that's the preamble, just be really careful what you listen to after that. Because here's the deal. God is at work in the individual, granular parts of our lives. I am confident. But most all the time, I have no idea what he's doing. I just know he is doing. 
I'm not convinced. There's kind of two views. One is, oh, we'll understand it better by and by. And you say, well, where'd you ever get that idea? Well, look at Joseph in Genesis 50. He looked back and it was all clearly. I'm not convinced that any of us will understand it better by and by. But we don't have to. Because our role is to trust him when we cannot trace his presence. To step forward by faith when we cannot see where we are stepping. And to face things that are difficult. There's two models. I see it and get it all. I'm as smart as God or I know God is at work and that is enough. I was reading through the Bible this week and got to Samson's parents, Manoah and his wife. They're barren. God says, I'm going to give you a son. He'll be a Nazarite. He's going to be a leader. And they're all happy and he's born and he grows up. And his first interest is in some Philistine woman. And he comes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I picked out a girl down there in that village. Why don't you go down and arrange it? He says, son, that's our bitter enemy. What in the world are you doing? You're a Nazarite. You're supposed oh, no, dad, you don't understand. She's the one. Here's what the text says in Judges 14.4. This is where we live. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. You talk about a life verse. That should be a life verse. Proverbs 20.24 says, man's goings are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? I've pondered that verse for a long time. Don't get stuck in a rut along the journey. Life is hard. God is good. And he is gloriously at work. The great glory of living is to trust God. Hold on to his promise and take the next step. And work off of his score. Because we know that the crescendo at the end is going to be glorious. And it will resolve in a beauty that we'll enjoy forever. If Joseph were here this morning, I said, Joseph, you get a chance to speak to the graduates. You get a chance to speak to the congregation. Here's what I think he would say. He would not stand up and say, try to figure out all that God is doing and see it clearly. No, I think he would say this. Graduates, your whole life is in front of you. God will be involved in each day at home and at work, in the marketplace, where you play, where you go. And he will be accomplishing his plans for his glory and his ways are perfect and he will be teaching you what he is like. What is written on most graduates' cards that grandma puts on there, who knows Jesus, is the best advice. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. Oh, Father, it's easy to preach. It's harder to live. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. For those who are frustrated, bewildered by the difficult things they are facing, discouraged by the cumulative disappointments in life, the dashed, broken dreams, 
the hurts that they've endured. Lord, come alongside them and remind them that you're Yahweh Rapha, who gives us a future and a hope that is good. For those sitting in the orchestra who just have a yearning to please you, but they're looking at the score of music and the maestro hasn't brought them in yet. It's coming. It's there. Oh, Lord. To just have a bit part in your family to receive your gift of salvation through faith in Christ. Lord, what more do we need? And then to live with our eyes open, even when we're going through hard things and realize that you never leave us or forsake us. You're a refuge and our fortress, our God in whom we trust. Thank you for your faithfulness. Bless our graduates. Bless former graduates who are in our 30s now, our 50s, our 70s, our 90s. Oh, Lord, help us make our boast in knowing the one true God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray. Oh, God, hold us. Help us into the future that you have ordained for us to have. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's celebrate our Lord holding us.